Where have you been? Cleveland. For God's sakes, Lemon, we'd all like to flee to the Cleave and club up down at the flats and have lunch with little Richard, but we fight those urges because we have responsibilities. everybody welcome to season two of put me in coach a podcast all about baseball my name is matt coggins and my name is carl mizell and it is so good to see your face again you as well my friend and right if i may add uh such a good time to be a a sports fan in michigan right now and it has nothing to do with baseball (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it does not. No, and, and you know what's funny is I'm wearing my my Tigers uh, Nike dry fit. You're wearing a Tigers jersey over a Tigers or Mets shirt. That's fine, but you're wearing your Tigers hat. <laughs> but you are not not representing neither your alma mater, the University of Michigan, which uh, I think they won a football game last week. That was pretty important. Pretty big one. Pretty big one. Um, and, of course, the Detroit Lions uh, definitely won their first playoff game in 32 years. Uh, it took them so long that I stopped caring. That's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy thought. for Yeah, I'm very happy for everybody who is so happy to see the Lions finally being good. Uh, but I, I gave up on – the Lions are the reason I gave up on the NFL um, like 10 years ago now. And I don't I don't miss it. It's exciting to watch. I'm happy for everybody. Uh, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it, it does feel weird to be talking baseball when Michigan uh, <laughs> football teams are doing so well. Yeah. And, and in general, like uh, we, we decided we wanted to come back uh, around the same time that we started the podcast last year because, uh, you know, we wanted to get some material out there prior to the baseball season starting it is just a a very bizarre time of year to be talking about baseball when you don't have a world baseball classic to add to the content but um i think we mentioned it at the end of last season that we're going to try something new in this intro part of this season where we're going to be doing sort of narratives and stories and telling you guys a little more background on stuff in the baseball world that maybe you know a little bit about, but we're going to do deep dives and long episodes. And this one will probably be pretty long, at least two episodes worth. So. Yeah. No, but I, I didn't I have wanted... anything bad. I was just, I was just yeah. saying, yeah. Yeah. Are, we, are, we, are, we, are we starting over? <laughs> um, I wanted to start with a, a little check-in about what happened in the last couple months since we've recorded, aside from the Detroit Pistons winning exactly two basketball games. Um <laughs> Jesus that is not Christ. a sport we're celebrating. <laughs> not right now. Um, but I mean, so there was some pretty big free agency news. We didn't know at the end of the World Series who was going where, what teams would sign who, and got a little bit better picture about what some of these teams are going to look like next year. Uh, the Dodgers, of course, being chief scary among them all. Um, what are your thoughts on the Dodgers signing Otani? Yamamoto, Glasgow, probably missing five or six other guys they signed. Uh, we haven't we've we've texted briefly about it, but what are your thoughts? What what are you thinking? It's it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, I, like I said to you, it's it was the most. It was the it was like a fait accompli. Like it was everybody knew that was probably what was going to happen. Otani to the Dodgers just seemed it seemed so obvious that when it happened, it was boring. Yeah. Uh, Yama, Yamamoto was more surprising to me than Otani to the Dodgers. Uh, of course, he had that wildly deferred contract that was kind of interesting to think about i'm actually the 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 thing that the dodgers did that i was most surprised by and impressed by was they finally traded michael bush um who was a 2019 first round pick and he was just stagnating in AAA. like they had no he was he was log jammed at every single position that he could play so they traded him to the cubs where he's probably going to be their first baseman um, so that was okay. actually really interesting to see like a strategic move like that. But yeah, I mean, it's whatever it's, he's still in LA. I think it's great for the game. I don't think that his contract means that baseball is broken. I don't think there's a problem with, uh, 
the haves and have nots. There was a lot of discourse around uh, why don't teams spend more money and look at the Dodgers and it's it's fine. Baseball's fine. The most famous baseball player on the planet is playing in one of the largest media markets uh, on the planet. Uh, it's fine. Baseball will be fine. This is good for baseball. That's what I think. We might have some disagreements come the end of this episode, but um, <laughs> that's from that's two fine. hours from now. <laughs> yeah, don't even worry. This is, you probably won't hear that until next week. Exactly. What do you think? Well, I think? I mean, brief. I mean, if you want to disagree with me right now, we can just get into it. But I'll I'll touch on what I think about that situation later. But you're totally right. Like, uh, I wasn't surprised when Otani or Yamamoto said they were going to the Dodgers. And I think more than anything, I guess I'm just curious what this means for the state of competition. And that, again, plays into what we're talking about today. Um, you know, the Dodgers were a first-round exit last year, so maybe this means nothing, you know? Mm. Otani's never even been on a playoff team. Neither is Yamamoto. Uh, Glasgow was also a first-round exit, or his team was, last year. So, I, yeah. you know, maybe this matters nothing at all. And, and, you know, it's not about the players, it's about the team. To make a football reference, Michigan just won a national championship with only two five-star recruits. It's something that uh, Ohio State or Alabama talk about a lot, that they've got these rosters full of kids that are five-star recruits out of high school, loaded with them, and none of them beat Michigan, which is a bunch of just guys. Just, you know? Yep. I think that plays into more, and we saw it with the Diamondbacks, it's more about the team than it is about individual stars. Helps to have those individual stars, but it's not everything. So I, you know, I'm curious to see what some other teams and people are like, why haven't this team or that team made a move yet? And there's definitely questions about like, what the fuck are the Red Sox doing? What are you know what uh, what's Cleveland doing? Like, there's some teams that you'd think would be doing more but aren't, and that's I guess my biggest question. You yeah. you knew the Dodgers, I, the Braves. The Yankees were going to do stuff, but here we are, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's, and that's the other thing. People have talked about how this is a boring off season and maybe it has been, I, I, I could hear that argument, but you had to wait until the top free agent came off the board and he sets the market. But then you also have what I think is going to be a big story over the next three to five years in baseball which is the fact that the top of the market is also being delayed by the fact that everybody at the top of the market is represented by Scott Boris. And next year, it's going to be even worse. Uh, Bregman, yeah. is, Bregman is a Boris uh, client, I believe. Uh, I know Juan Soto is a Boris client. Um, but the fact that he is scooping up more and more of the top of the market, and he is essentially dictating to the teams what the market is and i don't like that consolidation of power with one you know power broker yeah. that's the thing that i am, am more concerned about personally um i don't think that it, there was a lot of talk about teams that there needs to be uh, not just a salary cap but a salary floor because teams don't spend enough that's that's whatever I, I, look I, you make me defend billionaires it's not your money and they are they're going to spend it the way they think they want to spend it. And a lot of teams don't spend until they know their window is open. Um, and the Dodgers see a window. The Tigers don't see a window. They made a couple of moves, but when the Tigers' window was open, there was one year where they had the third highest payroll in all of baseball. Teams will spend when they see their window open. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's, that, that's a whole other thing for another time. We're just kind of catching up and uh, cutting it up here, but, uh, yeah, that TLDR, I thought it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. Show hated the Dodgers. surprise you? Um, I really was surprised by the Cardinals. Um, in, in, not so much the Cardinals, but the fact that people were like, look at the Cardinals. Look at them. <laughs> they signed Lance Lynn. Did you see him sign Lance I Lynn? I forgot and, about that. And Sonny Gray? And I, I think they also, did they get Kyle Gibson too? Um, sure. But people were, yeah, whatever, fuck it, I don't care. Uh, but people were like, yeah, man, look at the Cardinals getting out there. And like uh, the Royals made a couple of deals and everybody was like, yeah, look at the Royals. The Royals are trying and the Cardinals are trying. And I'm like, guys, these aren't these aren't really uh, big, big moves here. Um, yeah. So I was I was I was happy to see them trying and like putting in the good faith effort and I believe that the Cardinals have a like a strong organization like I believe some of the the fingerprints from the the or the fingerprints of the current Astros dynasty are also on the Cardinals there there's some overlap guys you know folks that worked in the Astros organization built it to what it is now have now gone over to the Cardinals 
so oh. they're definitely some yeah uh i i sig metal i can't remember how you pronounce his name he he was part of that and he went over there and there's a couple other ones and i think actually jeff Lun- lunau or lunau the former general manager uh o- the, who oversaw trash can gate and all that stuff i think he is now mm-hmm. a special advisor in in st louis um yeah so i was i was pretty surprised by that what it, what about you did you see anything that you liked that was like oh okay well you know, I, I, I guess I'm more surprised by the teams that have done very little. Like, the Cubs have done nothing other than sign console for some ungodly amount of money for whatever reason. That was weird. Yeah. Um, but, you know, our Tigers, I thought, made some good moves. I thought the Mets haven't been making, like, big moves like a lot of people hoped they would, but, like, smart, uh, short-term kind of stuff where it's like, hey, you know, here's Severino, here's Manaya. They might not be great. But here's a little deal for them, and maybe they yeah. will be. And if not, kick them out the door next year. Try again. You know, I like for for a team in transition, those kind of moves I think uh, matter a lot more than the big throw three hundred million dollars for ten years at a guy. You know. Yep. Did you see uh, who they signed out of the international market today? Was it Vladdy Vladdy Guerrero? Yeah. yeah. Vl- Vladdy Miguel Guerrero, another Guerrero scion. Uh, which it makes three now. There's, uh, there's of course Vlad Jr. and then Vlad Miguel, and then there's uh, he has another son named Pedro, who I believe is in the Rangers organization. Sure. Um, I just I was I I randomly uh, searched for I went to Vlad Guerrero Senior's uh, Wikipedia page, uh, and I saw that it hadn't been updated. So I quickly I edited Vlad Guerrero's uh, Wikipedia page today. That's my. I oh, added yeah. that. I, I cited it and everything. And I was like, oh, yeah. It, it, if you go to the personal life section of Vlad Guerrero, the part where it mentions that uh, they signed his son, that's me. Fuck I did yeah. that. Isn't that um, the most completely... thrilling thing in the world to edit a Wikipedia page? <laughs> yes, it, it was. I, I was. I, I went like straight into hacker mode. Like, I got to do this before somebody else gets to it. <laughs> We'll Hell never know. Yeah. Well, we won't, we won't know for a few. Maybe in five years, if the show's still uh, going, we'll we'll know whether or not uh, Vladdy Miguel Guerrero turned out to be anything. Yeah, he's only sixteen, so you know, we'll we'll see. We'll see what this means. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's off season recap. Obviously, closer to the season, we'll get deeper into that and actually say what these teams mean. But spring training is still uh, a distant uh, thought in many of our minds. So. <laughs> Not, not mine. I, I'm, I might. I, I had a, a call today. Uh, my team at work. Uh, we we're gonna get together for a meeting, and my boss was like, "Yeah, maybe Phoenix." And I was like, "Oh, Phoenix at the end of March? Please, no. I've never wanted to go to a Cactus League game. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully, the end of if it's the end of March, I might get to see a Cactus League game. If it's the beginning of April, I might try and sneak in a, a Diamondbacks uh, a home game if they're home early in the season. So nice. I'm stoked for spring training. Uh, ir- irrespective of whether or not I get to go. But that Hell is yeah. uh, a distant, it feels like a distant future. But right now we have a story about a team uh, that probably didn't go to spring training, but they probably probably could have used uh, a little training because uh, this is a, a story. You're going to tell a story about the worst team in major league history, and it's not the 1962 New York Mets. Not even close. So... Off by let's, 63 years. <laughs> <laughs> and about uh, twice as many games. Well, let's get into it. Um, this is our first big story. And so I, I really wanted to tell a story that's near and, and dear to my heart. It's the story of losers. So when last we checked in with the baseball world, the World Series had just wrapped up. It's our annual fall classic. It pits two of the best teams in baseball against each other for over 120 years years the diamondbacks they just proved that you don't have to have this blowout season to make it to the dance in fact the combined record between texas and arizona was among the lowest for a pair in the world series but what did the the diamondbacks do they got rid of the 101 whatever win dodgers like it's generally agreed upon though that the only teams that make it that far are the teams that win even the most unfortunate world series competitor which was the 82 win 1973 mets finished a few games above 500, meaning that despite losing the big World Series, they were in fact winners as far as the regular season goes. But I don't know about you, Carl, or our audience, anybody listening here, but after such a long year of hearing about the winners 
and talking about people that win. I'm ready to talk about the losers. Who cares if you won 100 games or had the best offense in the league? Who cares if, you know, your team went 500 and had a couple of good streaks throughout the year? The winning record can and probably will be broken. Home run and hit records will be shattered. Teams will ultimately shuffle their way around between success and failure. But, mark my words, nobody will ever break the record for the losingest losers of all time. In 1899, so we gotta go back a little bit. <laughs> 1899, the Cleveland Spiders lost all but 20 of their 154 games. 84 games behind the pennant-winning Brooklyn Superbaz, the current-day Dodgers, and 35 games behind their next closest competitors, the Washington Senators. To put that into perspective, the contemporary National and American League record holders for losses, which we just mentioned the brand new 1962 Mets and the impressively shitty 2003 Tigers, those teams still won twice as many games as these Spiders. In spite of the impending move to Vegas and the majority of their roster being traded away, this past year the last place Athletics still finished with 50 wins. They didn't just lose, the Spiders were worst in the league in runs, hits, doubles, triples, home runs, walks, stolen bases, on-base percentage, and slugging percentage. Many people know, or at least you, you might know, that the 1899 Spiders, they folded after this momentous season. They are synonymous with losing. That's, that's pretty well-defined. I've seen a number of YouTube videos and podcasts about them, sure. But what you may not know is that their race to the bottom changed the world of baseball for generations influencing the way that modern-day MLB took shape and what was ultimately a struggle between specialized laborers and opportunistic capitalists is a story we continue to tell inside and out of baseball circles. So, for our inaugural long-form story on Put Me In Coach, we're going to talk about the Spiders and how they became the worst losers in baseball history. <laughs> Probably going to be a sparing uh, sound effects episode. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's a lot of call for a DJ horn uh, when you're talking about the uh, the trials and tribulations of a 19th century baseball team. <laughs> Um, before we dig in, I did want to plug, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be more conscious of, uh, plagiarism and making sure that sources are cited. I have a nice, um, what do you call them? Uh, bibliography that'll be put in the footnotes, but I wanted to give a special shout out to my main source for this episode, which is a book called Misfits, Baseball's Worst Ever Team by J. Thomas Hetrick. Uh, he provides a deep ex examination and game to game breakdown of this whole season. Like he literally has a dialogue of here's what happened in this game here's what happened in this game we're not going to do that we're not going to dig that deep into exactly what happened game to game but if you want to read more about this season it's one of the uh meatiest yet short books I've, I've ever read and uh pretty well done it's it's the you know as i mentioned a second ago people have covered this story hetrick talks about this story and that's exactly what we're going to do here a big controversy here. M Matt eschews both APA and MLA citation styles in favor of Chicago. That is uh, <laughs> that is huge for all of our, our uh, bibliography nerds out there. I haven't Actually, had to cite just... sources on a paper in a long time. So. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny, not to divert too much, but you and I went to college at a time when uh, the process of citing evolved to the point where it's like, how do you, how do I cite a tweet? How do I correctly yeah. cite a podcast? How do I <laughs> Like, no one thought about that. No. And everybody just, just sort of like, fuck it, let's go. So uh, uh, shout out to those people out there who've had to cite things. It's hard. I get it. So here's part one. And I, I called it Whatever a Spider Can. And this is the history of baseball in Cleveland. So Cleveland, Ohio. Familiar with it? It's in the state of Ohio. Generally agreed by many to be one of the worst states in uh, the world. <laughs> no one's Cleveland, arguing Ohio, on this podcast. Yeah. Cleveland, Ohio was founded at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River in the tail end of the 18th century by surveyor and former Revolutionary War Brigadier General of the Connecticut Militia, Moses Cleveland. Throughout the 1800s, the small settlement ballooned as it served as an important post for the Union Army in the Civil War and provided easy access for trade in the Great Lakes region. The Forest City, as it was known, had a reputation in the growing and increasingly industrial America as a sixth city, dwarfed only by the major towns on the coasts and boasting a swelling manufacturing industry. And then there was baseball. Cleveland's first team, the Forest Cities, 
briefly brought professional baseball to the area, but disbanded after just two seasons in 1872. Five years later, the Cleveland Blues became the city's first National League team, playing six relatively unimpressive seasons with notable players such as Hall of Fame outfielder Ned Hanlon, shortstop Jack Glasscock, awesome name, and pitcher Hugh Daly, who threw a no-hitter in 1883. The most impressive stat from this period is that Cleveland apparently routed Brooklyn in a game in which they gave up just one run and scored 132 <laughs> with a 52-run first inning and a 54-run third. I would have loved to see what? that. <laughs> How, what? 54 runs. Scoring 54 runs, or 52 runs, 54 runs. And then, so so the quick math, hundred. So they scored twenty six more runs in the other seven innings. I don't know how many innings they played back then, but wow, just to I think go nine. off. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, they used to do nine game World Series. I think they even done they've even done like eleven game best or best of nine and best of eleven World Series. Um, d- don't don't tell the people that hate the wild card round about that they might get ideas um so around that time a small league was founded to rival the national league known as the american association the aa sometimes called the league the association or most appropriately the beer and whiskey league served a different breed of baseball fan than the puritanical and proper national league the ticket prices were cheaper alcohol was sold freely and games were played on sundays Crucially, the league established these teams in so-called river cities, such as Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and St. Louis, known for debauchery, lower social standards compared to the coasts. The current day Reds, Pirates, Cardinals, and Dodgers were all born out of this American association. And Cleveland was the kind of town that would fit right in with the association during its final years, and a window opened when the Pittsburgh Alleghenies defected to the National League. Cleveland's bid for a team won out over Detroit and Kansas City, and a new Forest Cities team was born, led by owner Frank Robeson and his brother Stan. Now, get used to those names. We're going to hear a lot about these motherfuckers. <laughs> and, and just so we're clear, the National League that they're talking about here in this, that Matt's talking about, is the, the National League as it is is known now. There was a competing le- many competing leagues. Um, the one that was most uh, analogous to this was the National Association, uh, but that one folded five years before the National League was founded in 1876. So Frank DeHaas Robeson was born in Pittsburgh in 1852 and was raised for most of his life in Dubuque, Iowa, where much like Kevin Costner, the cornfields magically imparted a love for baseball onto him and his little bro, Stanley. However, the driving force in his life was urban transportation. After marrying Sarah Hathaway in 1875, Robeson went to business with his father-in-law, streetcar pioneer Charles Hathaway. Together, they built a business out of horse-drawn trolley systems that extended rapidly across the country and later provided him the power to build his own railway system in his new home of Cleveland. Now, Robeson personally formed the Cleveland City Cable Railway Company in 1889, laying 24 miles of cable down Cleveland's major roads that could operate a system from a single powerhouse. Apparently, that's so fucking cool back then. Um, (laughs) Prior to, you know, a lot of roads and even like horse-drawn carriages were pretty new. Um, Stanley, he joined the operation as well. From here on out, just assume that Stanley was more of a joiner than a leader. Most of the script is going to be, Stanley was there too. (laughs) Um, (laughs) By 1897, Robeson took over several other railway companies and became one of the leading urban railway magnets in the country. His passion for baseball remained, but being a capitalist, he needed to find a way to exploit the sport for his own gain. In 1886, Robeson was approached by Columbus manager James Williams with the idea to buy the Columbus team, thinking it would be a great investment to build a park along one of the many rail, rail lines Robeson built in Cowtown. Now here's a side note here. I was trying to find a lot of nicknames for these towns you have to continually talk about. Columbus has a lot of nicknames. Cowtown makes the least sense, but my favorite is Flavortown because it's the birthplace of Guy Fieri, but also Columbus frequently serves as a test market for various national brands. So that's uh, Columbus for you. <laughs> Uh, Cowtown. <laughs> Robeson liked the idea so much that he not only bought the Columbus team, he aggressively campaigned for an association expansion franchise 
in Cleveland. In 1887, he got his wish, and the third Forest Cities team was born. Robeson chose prime real estate for his future park right between Cleveland's major thoroughfares and along his most popular rail line. League Park was finished in 1891, and it still stands today, approximately 10 minutes from Progressive Field. It featured some interesting dimensions. It had an extremely short 290-foot right field due to Owners of the two homes and saloons surrounding the ballpark property property, just refusing to sell. <laughs> they had to build around the neighborhood. I don't think that happens too much these days. Um, no. The Forest Cities, also again called the Blues, because people were so creative back then with the nicknames and the uniforms were blue. Uh, they weren't very good. That's all. <laughs> In 1889, the National League gave Cleveland the opportunity to join and the Robesons jumped at the chance. With the league change came a reinvention. Originally, they were called the Babes or Infants, depending on which source you're reading, and they donned sleek black and gray uniforms. One spring training, an executive noted that the slender and spindly players in the dark uniforms resembled underfed spiders. The name stuck, and in 1890, the Cleveland Spiders were christened. And that's got to be among the cooler baseball nicknames, I think. Oh, absolutely. Even though, again, it came from what they were wearing less so than anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they, they, the Cincinnati red leggings were, you know, they were just like, uh, what do we call these guys? Oh, they got red legs. Ah, oh, they're the Cincinnati red legs. <laughs> Go play ball and don't gamble. <laughs> so just as the spider saga started, baseball as a sport was in turmoil. Professional baseball began to grow, and as such, owners were finding more inventive ways to fuck with their workers. Beginning with a secret meeting in the 1880s, the National League established a five-player reserve list, which forbade certain... Forbode? Get back to that. Forbade. It for, forbade yeah. certain players from negotiating or signing with other teams. Five players grew to 11, and then came a $2,000 a player salary cap. And over time, owners were falsely reporting gate receipts and fudging their salary numbers. They were doing literally anything they could to turn the most profit. The first unofficial baseball union, the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players, did what they could to fight with this fuckery, and eventually they protested by forming their own league, the Players League, which lasted just one season. Ultimately, it folded for many of the same reasons it started. Investors just grew impatient with the lack of extreme profit. The de facto strike failed, with players returning to the National League the following season, and the only real major change was a few stadiums were built during the time of that league, most notably the infamous polo grounds in NYC. But of course, more than anything, the owners felt more emboldened. I like the rest oh, of the and, owners. Oh, Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to step on you there. No, I was going to say, and it didn't stop. You you think, oh, wow, yeah, they don't do that anymore. They fucked with the players for years and years and years to the point where the reserve clause was still around in the 1970s. And then on two occasions in the 1980s, the owners of Major League Baseball teams were found guilty in court of colluding to not sign players in order to suppress salaries. Uh, so it kept going. Yeah. Just so you know. Yeah. A problem, of course, in 1880s exists today for some parts, I, I think. Um, capitalism is uh, a fickle bitch, as we'll learn over the course of this script and probably many more. Um, and yeah. Robeson's brothers were no different. So, you know, like the rest of the owners, the Robesons focused on one thing with the spiders, and that was making money. Obviously, that's what they do. They're capitalists. They got to make their money. The mediocre years in the AA encouraged him to build an attractive-looking team that might pack the stands at League Park, especially amidst the chaos of 1890, when the PL outsold the NL. The first key was hiring player manager Patsy Tabot, known for preaching a rowdy style of play. You see, in those days, with only one or two umpires even assigned to a game, players, managers, and fans were free to beat the shit out of each other, and they did. <laughs> Now, Tabo's Spiders never finished first place, but he did lead them to three postseason series appearances, including the Temple Cup win against Baltimore in 1895. It wasn't, there were not two leagues competing as there are today. It was essentially your pennant winner, next up, those people would play a, a postseason, as it were, just a, a long series, and that would be your cup. Um, so the Spiders got to win the de facto 
prerequisite to the World Series in 1895. The Spiders' gradual progression to one of the better teams in the league was bolstered by some legendary players, including eventual Hall of Famers, and here's a couple of them. Left fielder Jesse Crabb Burkett, who holds the record for most inside-the-park home runs in MLB history with 55. Kind of a Asterisk on this one because uh, outside the park home runs didn't quite exist for a majority of his career. So, <laughs> yeah, they didn't. It was just uh, keep keep chasing that ball. It, just watch out for the crowd. Go get it. Yeah, and sometimes you have to fight your way through the crowd to get the ball if it was still playable. Um, there was pitcher and infielder Bobby Wallace who invented the continuous throwing motion for shortstops and was regarded as one of the best dual threats of his age. There was catcher Buck the con- Ewing who's the continuous yeah, so throwing I think motion. What, that what does means that even is, mean? <laughs> I think what that means is uh, the motion of catching the ball and in the same smooth moment that it takes you to catch the ball, pick it up with your hand, you're already transitioning to throw it to second base. I mean, that, yeah, that, that sounds sounds the closest thing I could think of. And it sounds like something that you could only invent in the 1800s. Because <laughs> what was it back then? You know, <laughs> yeah, you your shitty little glove, you pick it up. It was a visual yeah. <laughs> moment right there. Oh, they, they know. They get it. <laughs> uh, catcher Buck Ewing, whose two-year tenure with the Spiders contributed his best offensive seasons to his Hall of Fame induction, and he was the first catcher inducted. And pitcher John Clarkson, who's twelfth the, the 12th winningest pitcher in baseball history, he played two years for the Spiders at the tail end of his career. Now, other Spiders legends, not Hall of Famers, they included people like catcher Chief Zimmer, who had a long and great career in Cleveland even prior to those Spiders years and often led the team offensively, including in the upcoming season we're going to talk about. And uh, Louis Sokalexis, often identified as the first Native American professional baseball player. Remember that. Remember what team we're talking about. (laughs) Then, of course, there was the legend of legends, Cy Young. Yeah, that guy. The guy that they named the Best Pitcher of the Year award after. He debuted with the Spiders and spent eight of his 22 seasons there, Racking up over 1,100 strikeouts, 260 wins, he led the league in 1892 and 95, and 3,700 innings pitched. One of his three no-hitters came with the Spiders in 1897, which would have been a perfect game had it not been for his team's four errors. Uh, his best season as a player was his third in Cleveland, 1892. He led the league with 36 wins. He had a 193 ERA, nine shutouts, and a not league-leaning but still impressive 168 strikeouts it, to be fair to to his teammates four errors at that time was actually really good because again you talked about those shitty gloves if they were wearing gloves at all these fields were not exactly well maintained uh and also i think this might have still been a point where uh walks were cons- like walks were actually uh considered errors on the pitcher's part that there used to be a time when if you walked a batter it was counted as an error so Four errors is actually pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. And so, you know, we'll give that to him. He pitched a perfect game. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> perfect enough. The Spiders' 1895 Temple Cup win was the team's peak. They would make the championship the following year, but were swept by the Orioles. The next two seasons saw them finish no higher than fifth place, despite a winning record and still dominant seasons from Young and company. Baseball itself was starting to flounder as the Spanish-American War occupied most of the summer of 1898 and attendance for all sports dwindled. Some fans didn't return to the game, citing the long season, which had increased to 154 games in 1892 from 140. It's a long-ass season, you got a war, and you've also got this weird practice called brushism, which I learned about through the the course of this research, where uh, basically the owners really wanted to police the players and their obscenities, their 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 rowdiness, and they did that by basically saying nobody can swear, nobody can chew tobacco, nobody can drink in the stands and on the field. And it was seen at the time as like, oh, what the fuck? We're playing a game here, you know? <laughs> um, so that was a, yeah. a turnoff for fans and players alike. The tail end of 1898 saw the Spiders play most of their games on the road as League Park wasn't drawing a sufficient number of fans for Robeson's tastes. It was openly and deliberately done to punish fans, and Robeson's excuse was that baseball was a business and not a public service. Cleveland finished the season with the worst attendance in the National League at just over 70,000 fans, as far as we know, and still, with as much talent as the Spiders had in their roster, one would think that they could bounce back next year and really make a splash. Cleveland fans were then in for a surprise when, in March of 1899, 
the Robesons purchased the struggling St. Louis Ball Club. And now for part two, the St. Louis Swap. Much like Cleveland, the city of St. Louis has a storied history in both American and baseball cultures. It served as a central point of civilization in early native tribes, westward-bound European settlements, and eventually these United States. Lewis and Clark famously began their journey to survey the Louisiana Purchase from St. Louis. It too was an industrial town, infamously the home of American brewing, major lead production, some early brass era automotive manufacturing, and even dog food. <laughs> its position in the middle of the country and at the nexus of steamboat culture made it one of the most important trade hotspots in the country. And then, came baseball. <laughs> St. Louis saw its first professional team all the way back in 1875 and eventually became a charter member of the National League. Star St. Louis pitcher George Bradley threw the first ever no-hitter in history in 1876. A year later, this team was banned from the league for fixing games, declared bankruptcy, and continued on semi-professionally until 1881. And then in 1882, they were retooled as the St. Louis Brown Stockings under the ownership of German-American beer entrepreneur Chris Vonderahi, or AHA, I don't know, don't speak German. Uh, <laughs> he hired future White Sox owner Charles Kamitsky to lead the team to four straight American Association pennants, playing their future longtime rival Chicago Cubs, which were then known as the White Stockings, ironically, uh, in the World Championships. Vonderahi was a weirdo? And he was kind of an innovator for baseball. Uh, yeah, he did erect a gigantic statue of himself outside of the Brown Stadium, but he's also among the first owners to start a, a legitimate farm team, a separate minor league team to your own team. And he's also credited as the first to sell hot dogs at a baseball game. So, you know, I weirdo. Would love, I would love to see what it is about St. Louis and Chicago <clears throat> that attracts baseball innovators because... After Comiskey, you had Bill Veck in St. Louis and then in Chicago, who owned, he owned the St. Louis Browns, and he brought Eddie Goodell up, you know, the famous little person who took one at-bat and wore the uniform number 1-8. Then Disco Demolition Night in Chicago uh, was more his son's idea. But, uh, yeah, apparently something about being playing baseball in St. Louis and Chicago uh, fosters uh, creativity amongst its owners. Yeah, something in the water or just uh, middle of the country, uh, big city. Who knows? Yeah. So the fall from grace was swift once the Browns moved to the National League, combined with the struggles from Vonder Ahi. Uh, a losing record led to declining sales, which led to selling off players. And then bizarrely, he tried to turn the ballpark into a huge attraction complete with a horse track in the outfield, an artificial lake for ice skating in the winter, of course, an amusement park and a beer garden. The press called the facility Coney Island West and nicknamed the eccentric owner Vonder Haha, which is great, great <laughs> punsmanship in the 1800s. In 1898, a decent chunk of the ballpark burned down during a game, followed by Vonder Ahi getting kidnapped by his bondsman for unpaid debts. His <laughs> wife left him, and then the courts just took away the team because of all oh. this shit going on, but especially the debts. Uh, not a great year oh, for him. No, man. That's uh, big divorce dad energy right there. That's, uh, I would love <laughs> to see the 1899 apartment that he's living in as a divorce guy. <laughs> so the Robesons purchased the Browns at auction for a steal of the price, given Vonderahi's woes. Frank wanted a proud team out west, changing the name to the Perfectos and swapping the ugly brown jerseys for a vibrant red. It was March of 1899 when the sale was made official, a short time before the start of the season. Many back in Cleveland speculated about what this meant for the Spiders, especially concerning the legend Patsy Tebow and where he might end up, because Kamitsky had left St. Louis for Cincinnati and the last place Perfectos needed a manager. It was all but decided in the Cleveland press that Patsy would be moved to St. Louis. It just made sense. What the press did not expect, however, was that the Robinsons would be moving nearly all of the Spiders players to St. Louis. Frank saw it as simply a consolidation of the workforce between two companies, and the more skilled labor was just getting moved to this western branch. Robeson claimed that he was dissatisfied with Cleveland as a city, the poor attendance at the games, 
the small park, which is a weird thing to complain about because he built the park. So. <laughs> Uh, and he didn't like the Sunday ban on baseball, which was a law in Cleveland. Uh, Frank announced that Stanley would be placed in charge of Cleveland in conjunction with his role as the St. Louis team's treasurer, and the Spiders would operate as sort of a sideshow to the St. Louis team. In concept, the Spiders were essentially going to be a farm team for St. Louis, a minor league team, except the issue was they played in the same league against the same teams, including each other. You don't see, you know, the Syracuse Mets play the New York Mets and have those count as part of the record. That doesn't make any fucking sense. No, but it, but again, this is par for the course back in this time. Go be, go read a book about any, like just read a book about baseball in the late 1800s and early 1900s, or if you have access to the amazing Ken Burns documentary, Baseball. It was, this is the least crazy thing about baseball in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that one guy can buy two teams and then just pilfer players. Now, obviously, it became what we have now in the farm system. But back then, this guy was just being shitty and just didn't want to be in Cleveland anymore, but couldn't divest himself of the team, I guess. Yeah. 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 I mean, in general, you as an audience member might be asking yourself how this was even legal. Because, again, nowadays you could not do that. You can't own two teams at once. It's a blatant conflict of interest, right? What It's important to note that even just outside of baseball, these were the Wild West times for American business. The Sherman Antitrust Act was freshly made into law in 1890, but it was relatively vague and toothless. It, it didn't really have a lot of power, uh, especially when it came to actually breaking up these trusts. The Department of Justice rarely moved against trust until Theodore Roosevelt took office in 1900, and there wouldn't be a definitive law, regulation, or enforcement until Woodrow Wilson signed the Clayton Act and the Federal Trade Commission Act in 1914. So we're talking 15 years down the road before this is even actionable by the U.S. government. And baseball was no different. St. Louis and Cleveland conglomerate wasn't even unique, like Carl just said. This was a very common practice. Cleveland was just taking it to the extreme. Well, you had uh, the Louisville Car uh, Louisville Colonels did the same move with their other team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, as was the case between the pennant-winning Brooklyn Superbaz and their sister team, the Baltimore Orioles. The Giants and the Reds shared an owner. We call this syndicate baseball. Essentially, here's my team, here's my other team, we're going to share this as a syndicate. Uh, an owner or ownership group could hold a stake or total control in multiple teams and then use those teams interchangeably and there were no rules against it at all in Major League Baseball. The league would force owners to dissolve the Spiders and Orioles after 1899, we'll get to that way later, uh, but it wouldn't officially ban this practice of syndicate ownership until 1910. And it's going to be another 12 years before the American government decides that Major League Baseball is the only sport to this day that has an antitrust exemption. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And w that was brought up a lot during the um, the labor talks during the last lockdown, the lockout. Um, yeah. And something that Bernie Sanders was kind of threatening to take away from baseball, which would have been very interesting. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So the Spiders then were a casualty of an unregulated and unforgiving capitalist enterprise. Cleveland was victim to Frank Robeson's greed as they saw their favorite players sent west to don a Perfecto's jersey. Robeson immediately rebuilt the park in St. Louis, even improving the parts that didn't burn down, and transformed the concessions and atmosphere. He banned beer. He raised prices. He thought it might bring a classier and better behaved crowd to St. Louis. Maybe a little dog whistling there. <laughs> yeah. Cleveland, however, they still had to play 154 games. They still had to field a team. As far as Robeson was concerned, they didn't have to bring anyone to the stadium anymore, but Cleveland, they still wanted a Spiders team to root for, with the press stressing that this city was brimming with enthusiasm for baseball. What they got was the leftovers from the Browns. So I don't know if you've got my notes up, Carl, but I, I included a, a visual aid here and and this is actually the cover yeah. of the misfits book uh by hetrick so i'm going to explain it for okay, our listeners yeah. here because the Cle the cleveland press printed a cartoon on the front page of their april 1st issue depicting a group of old weird looking men in mismatched clothes one's on crutches another is dumpy with a broken arm there's a guy with an eye patch 
a guy with clown shoes, another with spectacles and a long goatee. It was titled April Fool for Cleveland fans, depicting what the town thought of this new team of spiders. Not very highly regarded. No, they do not look like a fit group of gentlemen. No. Uh, This team of misfits included catchers Jack Clements and Joe Sudgen, Pitchers Jim Huey, Still Bill Hill, Lewis Sport McAllister, and Kid Carsey. Infielders Tommy Tucker, Joe Quinn, and Lave Cross. And Harry Lockhead. The outfielders Dick Harley, Lewis Sokalexis, Tommy Dowd, and Jake Stenzel. The most notable among them, you got Tucker, who's third in MLB's all-time hit-by-pitch. That's something for the record books. Uh, he once <laughs> also challenged a fellow player to a duel, not with guns, but with baseballs. So, interesting fella. Uh, Quinn, he was the best hitter on the team, which isn't saying much. Uh, but he was also Australian, so you know, put that in the pro column. And then there's McAllister, who wasn't great, but uh, he was known as a full-time fill-in for any position, which I don't think exists today. Uh, he was kind of the guy on the team that was there if one of your players was too drunk or too hungover, <laughs> which <laughs> must must come in handy back then. Yeah, he played every game. And then there's Cross, who is the poor bastard burdened with managing the team. You've got Lave Cross. He might be the most interesting person in this whole bunch because unlike most of his Spiders peers, he had a successful baseball career before and after his time in Cleveland. He was a Wisconsin native and son of Bohemian immigrants, He started his career in Louisville as a backup catcher before making a name for himself in Philadelphia as an infielder. Known for his defensive skill, he led the league in assists and fielding average for the Phillies in 1894, plus batting a career-high 386 with 125 RBI. He has the distinction of being the first Philly to hit for the cycle in 1894 and set a still-standing Major League record 15 assists in a single game. Cross was traded to St. Louis after 1897 and responded with a stellar 1898. He hit 317 and finished among the league leaders in hits, doubles, and total bases, while again leading the league in assists and fielding average. Why the Robesons thought he belonged in Cleveland is really beyond me, but he took the job, graciously even playing the role of manager, and was among the best players on the team despite only staying for about 40 games. We'll get to that later. After his time between Cleveland and St. Louis, he'd briefly play for Brooklyn, win a pennant with them in 1900, before signing with the newly minted American League's Philadelphia Athletics in 1901. He finished his career with a final year in the with the Washington Senators in 1906. By then, he was 40 years old, but still played some minor league ball until at least 1912. He led third baseman in fielding percentage five times and ended his career with nearly every fielding record at that position. Games, putouts, assists, total chances, and fielding average, his 212 double plays ranks third. Impressive guy, Lave Cross. Yeah, seriously, and you've got his uh, fielding percentage there at, at 938, which again, back then, if you were successful 94% of the time on the shit fields they played on, you were pretty good. Exactly. And when you mentioned like, oh yeah, four errors in a game, really not that bad for back then. Yeah, not at all. So nearly every player transaction that moved players between Cleveland and St. Louis occurred on March 19th, which was just 17 days before the start of the new season. To add insult to injury, the Robesons announced that Cleveland would no longer hold spring training in the South. So while Saint, their St. Louis counterparts warmed up in balmy hot springs, Arkansas, the Spiders trained in the frigid land of Terre Haute, Indiana. Because of the freezing temperatures, most of spring training was conducted inside a gymnasium. Not ideal baseball conditions. Uh, no, as somebody who has d- had to do that, it is it sucks. Because then we also had to go through and clean up all the white scuff marks from the ball hitting the, the basketball court. <laughs> and you know, like walls and 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 wood floors uh i assume you're not playing with your spikes it's got to be a little challenging yeah cleveland was due to open their season on the road in st louis of all places on april 15th on april 3rd several days into camp they barely had enough players to field a team some were ill some were injured, but many were just holding out for more money. Uh, the Cleveland Papers d- explained it was, quote, not known on what they base such demands. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these uppity ball players thinking they deserve to be paid for their time and service. Do they not know what team they play for here? <laughs> so the Spiders lost their sp- 
first spring training exhibition throwing their best pitcher on the mound, still Bill Hill, who had already told management he wasn't in pitching shape. He gave up seven runs, two hit batsmen, and a wild pitch in seven innings. Cy Young, he was not. When camp ended, the Spiders seemed no more prepared than when they started, and even Cross said he wasn't expecting much, just that they were bound to finish the season well. There was no team photo taken that year. <laughs> Meanwhile, in St. Louis, Robeson pulled out all the stops for an elaborate opening day. An extraordinary parade led the crowd of 15,000 to the Perfecto's Sportsman Park. The mayor and the police commissioner gave speeches and threw the ceremonial first pitch. A full band concert welcomed fans into the stadium. Stanley made a tongue-in-cheek bet with his brother that Cleveland might pull off a win, and I'm sure they laughed like the little assholes they were. Ha ha ha. Cleveland fans held on to hope that the misfit spiders might just best those high and mighty perfectos. But Cleveland lost their first of 134, 10-1. Cy Young recorded the win with three strikeouts. How can you not be romantic about baseball? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I wanted to give a little taste of the other side of things to close out this first half. Um, because it's important to note that while Cleveland was sort of mourning the death of their baseball team, St. Louis was so happy to finally have something to cheer for again. So this was sort of their take from the other side of it all. And I'm going to do it in an old-timey accent. Baseball was disinterred in St. Louis yesterday. The deep grave dug for the national game by the Sportsman's Park Administration five years ago was reopened. The corpse was found to be in splendid condition. After 18,000 rooters had submitted themselves to the assistance of those skillful surgeons Frank DeHaas Robinson and Dr. Edward C. Becker in an operation for the transfusion of blood, the corpse got up and walked. It shed its grave clothes and attired itself in gay plumage to match the rejuvenated spirits. Baseball in St. Louis is once again like it was in the days of the four-time winners. And that's from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Bit of an interesting metaphor for a baseball team but <laughs> strange but back in 1899 that was a thing that like can you believe they made a dead man walk like yeah. that was that was like high high fantasy like speculative sci-fi uh back then so yeah it was a little uh, verbose but i liked it so that is the end of our first chunk of of this story and in the next chunk, we're going to get into what exactly happened in that awful season and uh, the games that they did manage to win. And then we're also going to talk about sort of what this meant for the future of baseball and, and everything that shook out in the aftermath. So uh, we're going to put some credits here, but we're not going to stop talking. We're going to keep talking after maybe a, a light break. But until then, this has been Put Me a Coach. Put Me In Coach is an Arctic Sounds original podcast hosted by Matt Coggins and Carl Mizell. Theme music is by Quack Quack Seatback. Edited and produced by Matt Coggins. Check out the footnotes of this episode to see links to all the great highlights, articles, and sources we mentioned on the podcast today, as well as the full theme song and ways to get in touch with us. For more, find us on Twitter and Instagram at PutMeInPod or at our website, PutMeInCoachPod.com. Put Me In Coach.